And it just kind of was a message. Number one, if you believe me, I'm saving your life. If you don't believe me, this is what I can do to you and no one will believe you. Hello, everyone. Thanks again so much for joining us here in the Caves of Altamira. I'm excited for our show today. I hope everyone is doing well. For those of you who have listened to the first three episodes, today's topic might seem a bit of a change from what we've been doing, but that's something I promised to you at the very beginning, that we're going to be trying to cover a wide range of issues and that we will be taking a broad global perspective and trying to understand different political, social, and economic phenomenon as they play out in different parts of the globe. I've also mentioned that My own particular studies and interests focus on modern South Korea and particularly the politics and economics of development in South Korea over the last 40 or 50 years. Now, as you can imagine, during this period, there is quite a bit to study and understand and look at um, from various levels of analysis, from the level of the state or thinking about social movements and protests. Uh, Korea, as we're going to discuss today, was under authoritarian rule from roughly 1948 when it was founded until 1987. It was under some mechanism of authoritarian governance with the final breakthrough of democratization in 1987. And our topic today zeroes in on a period during this history that I find especially interesting, fascinating, to be honest, quite inspirational. It's really a story of young people facing very harsh and restrictive conditions, confronting a dark and often deadly authoritarian regime who repressed the media, who tried to control culture and literature, who tried to control what people listened to, what they saw, how they acted, how they wore their hair, the lengths of their skirts. I'm not exaggerating. These were really aspects of the regime at some point or another um, that really ramped up, particularly in the late 70s and early 1980s. And it's about a group of students across South Korea who thought that this was not correct, that this was not the right way to go, and that even if Korea was becoming a much more prosperous and wealthy society, that sacrificing one's liberty and notions of justice were simply not acceptable. Um, There's a whole lot of other issues packed into this. Um, We're going to kind of get into those during the episode today, but that's really where we're going to kind of zero in on today. And we have as our guest, someone who has written an award-winning book on this very topic, uh, the graphic novel Band Book Club. And we're going to be welcoming today the one and only Ryan Estrada. Ryan has been in the business of making comics for nearly four decades. He started submitting his work at the age of six, and he kept at it until a newspaper hired him around the age of 16. Since that time, he has worked on comics ranging from Star Trek to Popeye to Garfield and Flash Gordon. These days, he works around the world writing films, TV series, radio, and creator-owned graphic novels such as Aki Alliance, The Kind, Broken Telephone, Student Ambassador, The Missing Dragon, and BAM Book Club, which we'll be discussing today. In 2020, he was named by The Beat as one of the creators of the year. So the primary focus of our discussion today is BAM Book Club, which was released last year. It's been celebrated by a host of organizations and the recipient of numerous awards. NPR, Crickus Review, the New York Public Library, The Beat, the Young Adult Library Service Association, the Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education, and the Texas Librarians Association all named it one of their best books of 2020. It's been praised by the Smithsonian Institute, received a Publisher Weekly Star, the School Library Journal Star, the Booklist Star, it was a Junior Library Guild selection, it won Best Graphic Novel at the Shaded Choice Awards, 
It was nominated for the Outstanding Nonfiction Award by the American Library Association's Youth Media Awards, and it's been a number one bestseller on numerous categories on Amazon and Aladdin. All is to say, this book has been a smashing success for a host of reasons that I think we're going to really get into during our discussion today, so I'm not going to talk too much about the book now. Uh, and it's just for the reasons that I've just stated, it's such an honor to have such a successful author and creator on our show today to discuss his book and think about the ways that the topics covered in it fit into trying to understand these universal questions of what should one do when facing oppression? How does one stand up against forces trying to close off democracy backed by a military regime that have murdered hundreds of people, put thousands in jail? What do we do when facing that kind of oppression? Do we duck our head down and just try to get along or do we stand up and push back? Well, suffice to say the BAM Book Club is about one student in Korea during the 1980s, but in some ways it tells a broader story of the thousands of students in Korea in the 1980s who pushed back, who refused to put their head down and just get on with life, and who stood up to a very violent and quite deadly regime, to be honest. So in some ways, literally willing to put their life on the line for what they believed in. So in some ways, the Band Book Club carries the best of both of these worlds by telling a very unique and particular story in one moment in time, in one place in Korea, but also tapping into these universal questions of justice and how we stand up in the choices we make when confronted with difficult forks in the road. And I think that's something we can all relate to and something that we particularly focus on during our younger years, but something that we also continue to confront and reflect upon as we get older. So this is just such an honor to have Ryan here in the caves of Altamira. One last note before we get into the show, as you'll see in the beginning, as it turned out, we recorded this at what would be roughly midnight on June 6th, turning into June 7th in the United States. It was uh, the afternoon of June 7th here in Korea and Japan, where we were both located. So as you can imagine, we were still kind of processing, we're both Americans, myself and Ryan, so we're both kind of still processing and trying to really come to grips with what happened at the Capitol that day. And so that's kind of where our show picks up. And in some ways, thinking about the challenges that society confronts and the ways that we process and face those challenges, the threat of authoritarianism and the various machinations that authoritarianism can take on when trying to propagate itself within a society is certainly deeply connected to the issues we are going to be talking about in our discussion today. So that is where we kind of lead off before getting into the book and discussing some other interesting activities that Ryan's been up to in other corners of the internet. This is a really wide-ranging and interesting conversation that explores a whole host of important and enduring topics through the lens of this phenomenal award-winning book that Ryan is a co-author of, Band Book Club. So let's turn to our discussion. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd like to welcome Ryan Estrada to the Caves of Altamira. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me in the cave. Dark right. <laughs> These are dark days. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, for the listening audience, it, it bears mentioning that um, just as, as it turned out um, with our schedule, we are recording this on what by now many of us will uh, know is, is a momentous day 
not for good reasons. Uh, as Ryan mentioned, dark, <laughs> we're kind of in the caves of a, a metaphorical cave and a, and a literal cave of in terms of where we are at, at least in US society and politics. And it's interesting, this episode will be coming out the end of January. So God knows where we'll be then. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ryan, you know, since this is a show about politics, and in, in some ways, uh, as I noted to you in a message I sent earlier, this does overlap in, in a lot of ways with some of the things we're going to be talking about today uh, with your book. You know, do you have any thoughts or any reactions to what's transpiring today? Yeah, I mean, uh, the first thing that I think of is that, like, you're talking about this come out the end of January. Like, who knows what's going to happen between now and then? People aren't going to know what day we're talking about because, <laughs> because this is the start of horrible things happening. Uh, so today is the day that basically terrorists attacked Congress and again, uh, the police opened the doors and let him in and they tried to overthrow an election. And uh, so, yeah, what a day to be talking about unchecked fascism and it's uh, how it leads to violence, which is kind of what happens in, in our book. And like one of the things about writing a book about this is that when we first started writing it, it was like, oh, well, here's this interesting bit of history people might not know about can help people see like uh, what could possibly be one day. And by the time it comes out, it's like, oh, everything in here looks so quaint. Right. <laughs> no, it's it's. It's just history straight up, as you said, like history rhymes, history repeats itself. It happens again and again. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, by the time people listen to this, it would be great if uh, consequences were established as precedent for this kind of thing happening. So far today, it seems like there's not going to be any consequences for anyone, which is going to be really bad for the future because my research and interviews have taught me anything. It's that things don't just end when, when there's something like this happens. It's going to, people are going to deal with the ramifications of it for generations and how people deal with it now really affects what happens with it later. No. And I think that motif that you just hit upon this idea of just waiting for the kind of clock to run out, clearly it's been very cynical from the beginning, but you get that sense from uh, these duplicitous actors like Mitch McConnell and and can list a whole host of other complicit actors in this. And even going back to when the election was clearly over and, and Biden had won going away, they had this idea that we're just going to let the clock run out. And I mean, I hope this disabuses us of any notion that Mitch McConnell is some sort of mastercraft political actor, even and even in a cynical sense, like even in the sense of maintaining power, because he has botched this and miscalculated how this was going to play out from the very beginning, right after the election. And, and we're, we're bearing the fruits of that right now. Um, I'm not saying he could have stopped everything or fixed everything, but clearly this notion that we're just going to let Trump play his little games and it, he'll just go away and, and sink off in, into, the, into the distance was fantasy. And, and I think anybody who knows Donald Trump or saw what he's been doing for years now is not surprised by this at all. So I, I think that's it. I like that, that you said this. It's, it just it doesn't end. That's not how these things work. Yeah. And a, and a lot of people are, are saying like, why would you bother impeaching him now? He only has two weeks left, but that's, he doesn't have two weeks left. He has generations worth of precedents, like I said, of what happens now, because the, the, the next person that comes a along that wants to try this is maybe not going to be a moron. And they're going to be like, well, this is established. No one's going to stop me. I can actually follow through on things I say I'm going to do. And the next person's going to take what precedents have been placed, what the lines have been erased and just blow past them and make even worse things happen. Right. We're getting a little bit ahead and we'll circle back to this later. But as Jun Duhan did mm -hmm. build upon the authoritarian 
kind of apparatus erected by Park Chung-hee. Our topic today is, is very much in line with that. Park Chung-hee died and there was this notion, okay, the, the dictator's dead. And uh, of course, all of these institutions, all of these practices were just picked up by another murderous and monstrous yeah. um, authoritarian leader in Chun Tu-hwan, who will be um, central to what we'll be talking about in a little bit. Uh, one last thing, and I, I mentioned to you this in a, in a message I sent to you earlier to kind of preview one aspect of the book and just talking about how today's events feed into this. Uh, one line from, from the book uh, on page 63 that really stuck out to me is, wow, this is such a good description of what we're going through right now, even though you're writing about Korean politics in early to mid-1980s. And that is, he, he being Chun Doo-hwan, the dictator who ruled over Korea from 1980 to 1987, he created such a divide between people who believe his lies and those who don't. And I, I just stopped and I read that like four times as, as I was reading the book and I was like, man, that, it, it, it gave me chills. Like that's what, that's the division, who believes Trump's lies and who doesn't. Yeah. So it really just stuck out to me. One of the best descriptions I've seen of what's going on now. Yeah. I think what, what, follow, what follows that is it's that the, the, the line was, he's created such a vision between those people that everybody's too torn apart to come together to properly oppose him. Yes. That's kind of what happened in, in Korea is that even after people finally fought and got their free elections, there were two different groups that he had split apart that like should have been able to defeat him, but they were fighting so much that the dictator won the next election and came back in power because they were like fighting over how they're going to redecorate his office and essentially and couldn't work together. Right. And you, and you had significant portions of the population or, or, or even by 1980, lar- um, you know, almost all the population who had been forcibly indoctrinated through the educational system. And I think that bore out in a lot of the resiliency of the aspects of, of the dictatorship or even sort of fondness for the authoritarians. Um, uh, so, okay, but we're, I'm, and it's my fault. We're, we're getting way, way ahead. I wanted to first um, start with just asking you because uh, now, you're from the United States, uh, and you've been living in Korea for quite some time. How long have you lived in Korea? I first came to Korea in 2002, right after college, and I, I traveled a lot after that. I, I haven't lived here since then, uh, but I've been, I've been settled here now for about eight years with my wife. So, and you're living in Busan. Mm-hmm. So, I guess that's my first question. Like, uh, you've co-authored in a book about this increasingly uh, little known even within Korea moment in Korean politics and history. And so how does one Ryan Estrada come to write a book about 1980s protest university politics in South Korea? I am not an expert on Korean history. I'm not an expert on social sciences. Uh, my, my previous books are about nerds trying to make friends and werewolves and stuff <laughs> like that. Like, I am, I am not someone who is known for political content. Right. Uh, but this this project kind of fell in my lap because I was just climbing a mountain and uh, with my wife one day and she casually drops like, oh, back when I was ca- interrogated by the KCIA. And I'm like, wait, what? What? And she's like, oh, I didn't tell you about that. Yeah, I, was, I ran a band book club. And I'm like, <laughs> what, wait, we've, we've known each other how many decades now and this has never come up? Really? And, uh, yeah. And it was, you know, it was never something she was hiding. It's just that, you know, in Korea, this was so normal. The, you know, it's, it's like there are people going through things in, in America right now that like people from a few years ago would never have imagined. But like if they wrote a book about that, everybody would be like, we all, we all went through that. We, you know, we all went through a global pandemic and, all, you know, so that's what it was for her. It was just like, why would I talk about that? Everybody went through that. And, and then I, I, I was just so shocked that my wife had done that, that I, I tweeted about it. A publisher saw it and offered us a book deal. 
So the book, it's, it's a nonfiction book. It is uh, about her life. We did change the names of characters and kind of compress like four years of stories into a story with beginning and middle and end. But, but yeah, so she kind of just told me the story and through talking to her and she went and reunited with all the band book club members and I would write questions that I had. She would add her own questions, interview them, come back and translate the interviews for me. And together, we just kind of put this together. And, uh, and yeah, like I said, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on these topics, but I, you know, my co-author definitely was because she was involved in it. And, and to have the involvement of all of the band book club members and uh, talk teachers that she had during that period and people from all different aspects of it to kind of tell the story and then kind of piece it together and how to turn all of this into a narrative about a group of characters and their experiences. Yeah, excellent. And and I think this book is just for a, a lot of the reasons you've kind of already mentioned or alluded to, it's just such an important book. Uh, and I'm really not just saying this because I'm talking to you know, one of the co-authors of, of this book about 1980s Korean university politics. I study this and this is very connected to things I research, thinking about the darker underbelly of Korea's quote-unquote miraculous development and, and particularly focusing on a lot of the politics of the 70s and 80s. And so, this is a period that I'm really fascinated by for a whole host of reasons, and I think it's important. And I really was worried that this kind of period is being lost, and a lot of younger Koreans think of this as like, oh, these are just a bunch of old people, and they're too radical, and you know, we're, we're different now. And just it, even if they, that's even if they think about it or know much about this period. And this is such a perfect way to encapsulate this. And, and it is the story of um, Kim Hyun-suk on one level, but it is a story that thousands and thousands of Korean university students in the 1980s lived through, right? And so it's, it's uniquely her story, but it is also representative of, of the experiences of so many young people at that time. And I find by and large, their actions to be, to this day, very inspiring and courageous for its pursuit of righteousness and, and fairness and justice in society um, and being undeterred. So, on that note, um, why, why don't you give me just a, a brief overview of the book? I, and, and it goes without saying, you should read this book. Um, it's just fantastic in terms of the story it tells and, and how much it captures about this moment in time in Korea, but also about the human experience more generally and, and the choices we face as young people about what road we're going to go down. So, on that note, why don't you give me just a, a little bit of an overview of the book, if you don't mind. Okay, so yeah, it's, it's called Band Book Club. And basically, this is just the story of my wife's freshman year of college. Her goal was to go and just get her work done, avoid the, the politics. Her parents were very clear, like, they didn't want to get involved in any of that. And she didn't have any reason to, to want to. Uh, it's just kind of, there were a lot of protests on campuses and smoke bombs and things. And, and she just, for a lot of people, it was just kind of an annoyance. But as she got more and more deeper inside, she came to realize, uh, why it was happening. And then one day she just, uh, she joined a book club. Uh, a cute boy asked her to join a book club. She thought it was, she thought she was just going to like go talk about the stuff they're reading in class and, she brought her copy of her favorite book, which was The Scarlet Letter. And then just kind of as she's sitting there, slowly realized that she'd accidentally joined a resistance movement. <laughs> and, and, Stumbled and, in. Yeah. Here I am. And, yeah, excellent. Yeah, and it's just kind of her like freaking out and running away, but then slowly realizing what it is and coming to understand it and then getting more involved. And yeah, what you, what you mentioned about the importance of interviewing people and hearing their stories, uh, 
you know, we pitched this as like a 100 page book of just her simple little involvement and how she got involved in it. But like, as we did interviews, like every time we'd interview someone, they'd have so many stories that I'd, I'd have to like contact the publisher and be like, oh, we just added 50 pages. <laughs> uh, because, because we met a guy who ran two newspapers. One was the one that the cops censored and the other one was a secret one that he had to do and hide under toilets so people could read the truth. And like, we got to put in 50 pages about that. And oh, we just, we just uh, got copies of uh, the, the diary of a guy who went to prison for having a book in his backpack. Like we got to put another 50 pages of, of what he's going through. Say, so, yeah, I really, we just, we did all of these interviews and all of this research. I read all of the banned books. And then we tried to just take all of that, but not, not have it be like a history lesson about that, but use that and how it affected these characters. And it's just a story of these friends coming together and like, and you know, it's, it's, it's a freshman year of, of college. It should be just time for hanging out and, and joining clubs and making friends. And it's, it's about trying to do that with all of this kind of weighing you down and, and how that affects someone's life and how someone's life can affect the future. Right. And, and on that note, um, just to kind of follow up on that, uh, what do you think are some of the big themes? And, and you touched upon them, but just to kind of dig in a little bit more in terms of either in terms of Korea or just broader themes, like what, what do you think are some of the, the big themes that this book touches upon? One of the biggest things it talks about is how, you know, especially in times where such important political things are happening, no act is non-political. Like all of the things that Hyun-suk tried to do to avoid politics, she ended up like, you know, one of the first things she does is she joins uh, the, this Korean mask dance club that's just, you know, banging on drums and like doing a thousands of years old monster story that she thinks is what's what can be political about that. And then she finds out that it back at that time, that was like part of the protest because this thousand year old story was about a monster that eats rich people mm. uh, to get into heaven. And, uh, and people kind of, it kind of riles people up to, to protest. And then just learning Shakespeare, she learns about how in the past, the same books that she's allowed to, to study were banned in the past because people in power saw themselves in the book's villains and didn't want people to make the connection. So it's just about all these things she tries to do to avoid politics are very political acts, whether she does them or not. So she might as well learn what's right and try and do what's right. That's what I think is so amazing about this book is it is this very faithful and, and moving um, recounting of this specific moment in this specific place and specific time in South Korea. But it also taps into these universals and in some ways is a, is a means for us to contemplate. She was uh, experiencing this, as, as you said, just a college freshman, first year student. But these are things that we confront throughout our lives, this notion of convenience and expediency and just wanting to get along and taking a stand and deciding that action is necessary or, or acting upon our notions of justice. And I really like that idea of coming to realize that doing nothing was a political act, right, in, in these conditions. And in some ways, I, I, I teach, you know, intro to political science, and that's always one of my mantras is saying like, oh, I just, you know, can't we just get politics out of this? And can't we just, you know, for, just forget about politics and just worry about our day-to-day -day lives? And I always say, well, that is a political statement. Right. And so I, I very much, um, am on board with that. And I think, uh, her story is such a way of understanding that, right? That, that, and, and particularly in these, in the kinds of times that she was facing during this period in Korea. And, and I, I wanted to circle back to the, the mass club because to me, that was one of the more fascinating components because of this was kind of often put under this broader collection known as like the Minjung movement, which was like this idea of creating a counter nationalist 
framework opposed to the one that had been created by the military dictatorship going back to the 60s and 70s. And a lot of this was focusing on rediscovering these kind of ancient Korean art forms, right? And so, uh, it, which is interesting because uh, if you just show up and say, wow, it's mass club, it looks fun, it's, it's a kind of traditional, but that in this context, uncovering these traditions and reviving them was seen as a political act to push back against the state's official sanctioned version of what Korean nationalism is and what Korean history is. It had very strict kind of guidelines on what counted and didn't count as official history. So I think that the centrality of the mass club um, in the story really touches on a kind of important um, historical component. In that context, to me, this period is defined by the long shadow of the Gwangju massacre kind of casts a pall over university politics, um, particularly campus student-based politics in the 1980s. And unfortunately, I haven't been there, but I have seen on, on some of your Facebook photos that you have been to the memorial in Gwangju. And I think a lot of people outside of South Korea and, and maybe people who are like K-pop fans or, or into Korean pop culture and, and movies and so forth might know a little bit, but I, I would imagine a lot of people outside of South Korea really ver know very little about Gwangju, uh, which took place in 1980s and is a kind of formative component of understanding modern Korean politics and society. So, I wonder if you could just give us a little background on the Gwangju massacre. One thing that only came out recently, like people didn't know this until a couple of years ago, the Chun Doo-hwan basically knew that he needed some kind of, what politicians always need is the crisis only they can save you from. Mm. So, he's like, let's kill two birds with one stone. Let's put down one of these protests and then also let's make me look like a hero. So he's like, we need to take one of these protests and just say North Koreans have invaded. It's North Koreans in this city that are attacking. And it came out a couple of years ago that he put together a short list and my wife's school was one of them. And uh, he did not end up choosing my wife's school. They didn't know that at the time, but he chose the school in Gwangju. And the only reason he chose Gwangju was because w one of his political rivals was from there. And so, just some students were having a protest. He sent in tanks. He sent in helicopters of shooting people from helicopters, just massacre, killing people, closed off the city, wouldn't let cars in or out. And since he controlled the media, you know, all of, all of his friends ran the networks and anyone who ran a network that opposed him, it was taken away from them. Just the news said, the North Koreans are invading. We, we're stopping them. We're saving you. And so, he was just able to just murder countless citizens and even like mothers running to help their children, just this horrible, horrible tragedy. And then immediately after, people didn't know about this. Like in the book, we talk about how a lot of the people learned years later because they'd have like secret meetings where they would watch BBC news coverage of it because it was literally no one was allowed to talk about what actually happened in Korea. So, they had foreign news to find out that that had gone on. And it just kind of was a message. Number one, if you believe me, I'm saving your life. If you don't believe me, this is what I can do to you and no one will believe you. Yeah. And, and I think one thing that comes out of that really excellent summary of events or narrative of, of what occurred is how it ties into the sheer scope of the authoritarian regime in South Korea, which again, I think very few people are aware of, even some younger students in South Korea today are unaware of in terms of the control of the, me the media. Um, Jun Doo-hwan set up re-education camps, right? We, we think of like re-education camps as the height of dictatorship and communism often. Um, there's re-education camps set up throughout the country where people are forced to go and 
learn how to be quote unquote well functioning citizens. And the past was dangerous. Certain memories were to be forgotten. Guangzhou was not to be spoken of. Um, and that was something that persisted in the 60s and 70s. Um, the massacre in Jeju Island was not to be spoken of. Um, and these, you know, society in South Korea carried with it huge amounts of uh, secrets, not that people didn't know about them or want to talk about them, but that speaking of them, even within close confines, because as, as the book points out, the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, the KCIA, was everywhere. It created that fear that even in a situation where you think you were talking to someone you trust or know well, uh, the specter of surveillance was ubiquitous in a way that I think is very underappreciated in terms of now we think of South Korea and BTS and you know all these great movies and, and animation and vibrant soul life and Korean food. And these are all great things, but uh, I, I think it, it can sometimes obscure understanding. And that's why, again, I think this book is, is so important for pushing our attention back to, to, to these kinds of important formative years. Yeah. And I, and I think that's important not to say, look what darkness Korea is hiding. Mm. It's, import, it's important to look at that and say, look where Korea has come in those few years. Like so much has turned around because people did the work and they made sacrifices and they, and they fought for what was right. And they're still fighting for what's right to make sure that that doesn't happen to future generations and history doesn't repeat itself. And, you know, with, with the candlelight movement recently removing uh, Bakane, it was like she tried to make history repeat itself and people are like, oh, no, we've been through this. We're stopping this right now, which is what uh, I'm hoping, I wish would be happening right now in America. But it's like, well, that's done. It's almost over. Yeah. Speaking of history repeating or, or rhyming, one thing that stuck out to me in the book in the context of Park Geun-hye, which uh, again, for our listeners, in case you're not um, very up to date on, on Korean politics and, and so forth, she was the recent president who was removed several years ago and impeached for uh, multiple issues of corruption uh, and also basically handing over the day-to-day -day operation of the government to a um, bizarre woman who claimed to be a mystic. And that's a whole nother story. I tell my students sometimes, like I sit down and explain like the whole story of Chaesun Shiel. And they're like, no, you know, these are students in Japan. I mean, they live close to Korea. They're, they're, some, they're like, that can't be true. And I'm like, that's absolutely true. So uh, we're not going to, we don't want to go down that road now. But one, one aspect of the many scandals of Park Geun-hye uh, was this blacklist that there was found that the government kept a blacklist of artists who were known for saying anti-government things or things, and they were not to get national money, and they were not to be on national TV, um, nat national TV programming, and, and so forth. And I, I thought about in the context of, from Band Book Club, the master of revels, right? So, um, and, 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 and so, what is the master of revels, if you could, if you could tell? Because I think that, that ties into this idea of history repeating itself. Yeah, the Master of Revels is a, a thing where that they discuss in her uh, in her English class about uh, Shakespeare's day, where there there would be like someone that literally had to go to all of Shakespeare's plays to make sure he didn't get too political. Right, uh, and there were different versions of Shakespeare's plays that he would perform, whether it was for the public or for nobility or for you know it was kind of an underground show that the cops didn't know about. He could maybe be a little bit more political, and so they kind of compare that to just. That's what happens now. People got to be careful what, what they say. And yeah, I, I found it fascinating that in, in the time that this book takes place, that's what was happening, but except like people that wrote things they didn't like would literally disappear or go to prison. And then Bakane tried to do that in, uh, because Koreans learned from that history. Not only by the end of the year, not only was she gone, but last year, 
a lot of those people that were on her list were on stage at the Oscars. So uh, she didn't win. <laughs> no, she's in jail, um, as is uh, Imam Bak, um, the, the president uh, who preceded her. So yeah, the last, the last two presidents are, are in jail. Um, Jun Tu Hwan and uh, No Tae Woo, uh, the two first pre- you know, presidents in the 80s and early 90s were also jailed. Uh, so yeah, this is a, and, and on some level that, like you said, it's, it can be depressing, like, wow, all these Korean presidents have been to jail. But another level, I think it speaks highly of the vibrant um, public culture and democratic culture in South Korea. In a way, I think there's a connection in a way that always makes me feel envious because President George W. Bush and Dick Cheney should have been arrested and put in jail for what they did and what they, and what they suborned, um, you know, uh, and they weren't. So I think it's, it's one level to say, wow, Korea, what a crazy place. All their presidents go to jail. And I'm like, well, you know, we've had a lot of presidents in the United States who either been complicit or actively participated in crimes and they, we have this whole thing, well, we should just let them go. Now, one thing that really did stick out to me about the Park Geun-hye affair, and I think it tells us a lot about modern South Korean society and, and where things are at, is the fact that Park Geun-hye is sitting in a jail cell where she belongs, certainly, but the new chief of Samsung, um, Lee Jae-yong, is off scot-free. I mean, I think that tells us, I think that tells us a lot about where power is in, in South Korea today. Uh, that, that, you know, that's a little bit of a different issue. But I do, in terms of I like what you touched on earlier, that this is a story of uplift, right? That there is sadness, there is oppression, there's torture, there's murder, there's surveillance. Um, these are dark things. But to me, this is why I always like learning about this and studying this and writing about this, but also teaching this to university students in Japan to have them use their imagination. And of course, there's a lot of differences between Korea and Japan, but there's, there's a lot more similarities between, say, them in like Germany or them in the United States. So they can kind of, it gives them a, this access to try, what would you do and, and how, how would you act in that these people were your age and your position, you know, they wanted to just get a job. And like, like you were saying with Kim Hyun-suk, like she just wanted to get, get a job and kind of keep her head down and found herself in these positions that made her make really tough choices. And I think it's always great to use this as an example. And a few things that really kind of stuck out to me about kind of things students did, and, and this comes out in the book and in, you know, you said putting newspapers in toilet stalls. Uh, one of the things that always, uh, I read about this in, in, in another book, I read about this period was uh, one thing they used to do in Seoul at some of the universities in Seoul is they'd print up a bunch of pamphlets and they would pick very crowded intersections in Seoul and they would just kind of like bust out and just like hand these pamphlets out talking about the truth of Gwangju or talking about the truth of government oppression or calling people to action. And they would kind of disappear into the big crowds once by the, by the time the authorities got here. And to my students, I say, like, you think, well, how do people do these things before Twitter, before Facebook? And I think that's another thing that comes that I think is so great about Band Book Club. It, it, it shows that before social media, before these other things. And that's, I'm not an old man, like trashing those things. I'm just saying these were in some ways necessitated a much more direct form of interface. And I think that's another thing that I, the book is really important is showing that before these kinds of modalities that we think about in terms of the way people connect and interact and organize um, existed, that people met in shady places and, and put newspapers under toilets. And so I don't know, what do you think about that? Yeah, like, uh, like, like we were saying earlier about watching the, the Guangzhou footage, they couldn't just send a link. They literally had to make a fake uh, film club. They had to get the fil- fake film club approved by the, the school government they had to book a, a room to have their film club. They had to send someone to another university to get a VHS tape someone had copied of this footage, 
have them go back across the country to bring it, invite people to the film club while like secretly being like, this, we're going to see some secret stuff. And then like barricade the door, show the footage, and then deal with the cops showing up and tear gassing them for showing the footage. Like the, this was a whole months long process right. to get someone to watch a video. Right. And it, like people would be arrested for it. Right. And, and I don't want to be overly romantic because there were, you know, issues within the movement. Um, I thought one scene that was a bit, you know, comical or not comical, but I, I think poignant was there were a few of the females who were walking along. I think uh, Hyunsu was, was one of them. And they're like, what are we doing? We're like we're, we're organizing this. And like these guys make all these plans and then they make all the women do all the all the, all the kind of organization, I thought. So I don't want to over-romanticize this, but I think it's just a very inspiring to me to see the courage and, and the dignity in all of what you just described comes out and that just to show 30 minutes of uh, BBC video clips, all of these things that they're willing to do, all of these risks that they're willing to take. And I think it is a story of the prevalence of, and, I, and again, I don't want to be too sappy and romantic, but of the human spirit, of a belief, because that's what they were obviously facing a well-heeled, well-organized, massively powerful military dictatorship. So, mm-hmm. I mean, wh- you know, a- on some level, the kind of, the, you know, the chutzpah of these college kids to be like, you know what, we're still going to stick it to them and we're going to stay at this. Um, again, not to sound too sappy, but that's really inspiring. One thing that I think reflects upon that is that when we wrote this book, we changed all the characters' names, we changed the name of the city, we changed the name of the school. Because, you know, even though we interviewed these people, we had permission to share their stories. We're just like, uh, you know, we are making a book about technically crimes that people committed. So we're, we're not going to like put everybody on blast. And then like after the book came out, every institution and person involved has put out press releases to make people make sure people know that it's them. Like people can still stand by what they did. Right. All these years later. Like the Changwon City, the mayor of Changwon City invited us out, like had a press conference. Uh, with us um, over the book. The the head of the school invited us out, did a big press conference about the book. One of the main characters is now a politician, has been going coming along with us for all of these. So people are people are proud of what, what they did and they can stand by it. And in some ways, this is so demonstrative of why I fell in love with Korea and the certain aspects of Korean society that really made me want it to be somewhere where I studied and where I lived, I ended up getting this job in Japan. So I left with kind of a heavy heart, but it's still part of me and, and part of what I do. And, and I think these stories and, and these moments and, and what these students did represent all of the best of, of what Korea as a society, as a culture, as, as and so forth has to offer. I mean, of course, there's things that I would, I'm not exactly uh, thrilled about, but that in some ways, that's why I think about it as seven, a second home, I see the good and the bad. But it, it, these are things that I find to be emblematic, I guess is the best way to put it, of, of things that I find really admirable about Korean society or South Korean society and, and culture. And on that note, kind of maybe to wrap up our discussion of the book, before you, you mentioned that Hyun-suk had met up with some of her fan book club collaborators and friends recently, and one of the, her club members had gone on to be a politician. And so I kind of wanted to ask, like, what has become of this generation? Thing is, everybody has gone on to live their own lives and have their own freedoms. You know, I, I know I, I, I've heard like from within the the band book club, like people talking about like like joking about which members sold out, which members are are still stubbornly holding on to their old ideals and everything. So it's not like anybody had this monolithic uh, reaction to everything that happened. That's one of the important things about how things like this uh, work. Everybody came together to oppose something 
you know, in, in the book, we talk about how um, in order for a movement to happen, someone has to be the annoying one first that kind of says, oh, actually, this is a dystopia and annoy everybody. But then uh, by 1987 is when, like, everyone started to kind of figure out, you know, they're right. And then that, what came next is what they call the, uh, I think, uh, like the necktie, uh, what was it? The, the necktie army. Yeah, it, it basically like all, all the, just the salary men at work would be like, um, kind of got on their side and during their lunch break would just come downstairs in their neckties and just bring them food and bring them water and then be like, oh, my break's over, got to go back. And then like come join them again after work. So it was just people that don't necessarily have to agree with one another or be in the same part of life. If they can come together and be like, hey, let's oppose this dystopia, then uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. even the people that agreed with one another can then branch off and have completely different types of lives. Just, you know, when you need each other, you, you kind of work together. And I think that is emblematic, again, of kind of that Korean, they have this, they always talk in this notion of Jung, right? This kind of notion of, of lives being bound and wed together and interconnected. And there's many levels of it. But Koreans will often say that between Korean people as a nation, as an ethnic group, as a culture, there's this continuum of Jung. Uh, and maybe in the in the necktie, I think it was like the necktie brigade or something like that. But it does, though, and, and I don't want to turn it to a, a more of a dour note, but it, it that interaction between kind of the student activists, um, some labor activists who are also part of this kind of collectivity. And um, obviously, some of the radical um, Christian churches were part of this. Uh, it, it, all, it did have some sour outcomes in terms of what people thought democracy was going to be. And it may be some ways that the part of that's healthy. Of course, we, you know, democracy is people disagreeing on what democracy is. And it came up and you mentioned like who sold out or who didn't. And I'm not weighing in on that. I'm not in any position to judge what, what anyone did in terms of um, the career or life they pursued, of course. But that notion of, I think for a lot of the student activists, they were a bit let down in terms of what they envisioned Korean democracy would mean um, for reunification, uh, for labor rights, for distribution, equality, you know, and so forth. I'm, I'm working on a paper right now on inequality in Korean. And obviously, after uh, the dictatorship fell, a lot of the more, for lack of a better term, radical or progressive aspects of this movement were swept under the rug. And it became a, it was, in some ways, it's a weird way. It was like a conservative democratic revolution. But one last thing in, in, in talking about, like, since you brought it up, was one of that I think is one of my favorite movie characters um, uh, from The Host, uh, which is it's, it's Bong Joon-ho, right? Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, who obviously is the director of Parasite. Uh, there was that character who was like the salary man who used to be the um, 80s activist. Do you remember that from The Host? I don't know if, you, if you've seen that. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah so that, that, I thought he was just such a great character because he embodied that like, I used to be this radical and now I'm, uh, you know, just kind of keep my head down and, and try to, you know, get by in the office. And I thought, as, as with many Bong Joon-ho films, like that was just such a great character that really captured an um, aspect of uh, contemporary Korean society and how it fits in with the past. But then those old, uh, those old Maltov cocktail right. uh, uh, skills, they come in handy when you got to fight a monster. Yeah, he did. He did come through, right? And he kind of broke through, which is very, yeah, I mean, it just caps, it's such a, mo a great motif that uh, does play out in real life in, in Korean society, right? Where people just kind of reach their limit um, and, and kind of break out, uh, which is, uh, again, I think another really great part of life and, and, and living in Korea, seeing that ebb and flow. Um, so, 
Thank you so much for discussing the book. And and I kind of want to shift gears now because I think there's also something you're kind of uh, really blown up as as, uh, as as an artist, as an author. Um, this is one of many projects you're working on. And, and uh, it's, it's just great to see all the success you're having and, and well-deserved with this book and, and other projects you're developing. But one thing that you've also gathered quite a bit of attention, and to be honest, I was quite shocked. I'm not a, I'm not a regular Twitter user. Um, and I remember you talked about this uh, this Twitter, I, I, get, I don't even know a Twitter account you put together called For Exposure. And so I'm, I'm not going to lie, Ryan. I mean, I, I was like, oh yeah, Ryan, he did that For Exposure. Maybe that'd be a cool thing to talk about. I remember he said it was, and I saw you had freaking 242,000 like followers or something. I was like, good. I didn't realize like, you know, to me, that's a huge number. And I was like, wow, this is really a phenomenon. So why don't you tell us a little bit, what is the Twitter feed For Exposure all about? For Exposure is just a place where I post quotes from unpaid artist wanted ads and just kind of find the funniest, most disrespectful ways that people expect artists to work for free. And uh, it's, you know, it's it's all, I'm not like calling people out and like stirring up mobs. I'm I'm just, uh, it's just funny, anonymous things for artists to laugh at and then like notice red flags and it kind of has helped change the conversation about unpaid work because, you know, anytime anyone now tries any of the things that I post on there, like a thousand people will comment for exposure text, for exposure text, and then they'll like delete the the tweet or like offer payment. A lot of the places I used to get these ads from now, like now no more of that because they're they're sick of getting quoted. So it, it's just a nice yeah, it's it's just, you know it's 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 just a nice way to like help artists get what they're what they're worth and not be taken advantage of and and things like that. It's it's just fun. It's it's one I started by accident. I literally just started as a joke. I was going to do like four tweets, and then it I I'm like, well, let me see if I can find any more. And within an hour of searching, I had pre-scheduled two years of posts. So um, there was just a lot of right, it out there. You really struck a chord, obviously. Yeah, and it's been going for I think like eight years now, something like that. Right, and it's obviously just garnered. Um, I said it's what really struck a chord, and I think this really taps into something that kind of the deeper kind of undercurrents of of how politics and power filter into every everyday you know various aspects of of life and society. And I think this that's why I wanted to also kind of delve into this a little because I mean, of course, there's the way that art is political. I mean, Band Book Club is a political work, right? I mean, it's a very, it has a political, and, and, and painting and music, and of course, all of these things can be very overtly or um, covertly political in their expression as art. But there's also the politics involved of, of power and money. And I think that's where the four exposure really shows that the way people try to use power and their control over access to audiences, because that's really what it is, right? They're, they're trying to say, I have access to this audience and I'll give you access to this audience that I have control over in lieu of money. And I mean, that to me, that's trying to get someone, as you've noted, to work for free. So mm-hmm. you're a working artist in this age of for, in the four exposure age. And so I wanted to see kind of your own experiences in trying to navigate that. Yeah, it's just a, a lot of people just don't think of art as work because it's something that, that they think of as fun or as a hobby. They don't realize that like, it's still work. And like I draw for free all the time. I write for free all the time for my own things that I'm passionate about and I love doing. But like drawing someone else's nonsense is takes so much mental energy. Right. Like it destroys a piece of your soul every time you have to <laughs> uh, make something for someone else. Mm. So like it, it, you're not doing us a favor by letting us design the logo to your startup or earning like that. It's, and yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I especially don't get a lot of it now because I think people are afraid to <laughs> ask me now that I run Corey's Porter Tech. Right. Um, I, I mean, even like a lot of things, like I've found out like people are afraid to invite me on podcasts before because like you said, they're like, but I'm not going to pay him. Is he going to yell at me? I'm like, no, that's, that's not. I, I'm, I love going on podcasts talking about things. You don't have to, but like, but yeah, I, I'm lucky that I don't have to deal with it anymore because everyone's afraid of me. <laughs> a lot of artists still, still very much have to deal with that. And they're always sending me quotes of just the absolute disrespect of, and it, it, it's funny how a lot of them end up being just like the, the things like women post of, of guys who try to flirt with them in DMs and they say no. And all of a sudden they're like, well, you're ugly anyway. It's exactly like that with artists. It's like, we draw this for free. No, well, your art sucks anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, you just wanted me to, you just wanted me to draw something for you. So yeah, I don't know. It's just a, a level of disrespect that uh, is, you know, is changing now. P- people are talking about it more, but it's just one of the problems people deal with. I, you know, I, I never set out to like have a crusade and, and change the, the narrative, but it just kind of accidentally happened by this joke Twitter thing that I started. And so I kept it going. Right. And I think you really hit on an important aspect of this is that just because you are fortunate and, and I'm, I, even though I'm not an artist, I, I write, I don't, I don't know how, you know, academic articles aren't very artistic. Sadly, I, I try to, I try to give them some flair, but uh, all that aside, I, I am fortunate enough to do something I quite love doing for a living, uh, but I still, you know, need to be paid for that. Right. And so, you know, I think that's some, if you, when you put it that way, like, it, it, but there is this weird thing like, oh, you're an artist. Like, don't you just care about the, the art, man? Like, what do you, what are you, why are you selling out? Like, because you, you want to get paid for like things you invest your time and effort. And like you said, almost like your mind and energy and, and training and equipment and all of these things. And uh, hey, don't you just want to give that away for free? What's wrong with you? So it's, I, I find that whole stick to be, like you said, almost insulting that. The, the mere fact of expecting to be paid for your work is something I think we all intuitively understand, but somehow, and, and I said that it's, it's kind of, this seems like this kind of circular thing where it's like, if everyone's just doing it for exposure, then when does the money ever come? Right? Yeah. You, if you do something for exposure, you're exposing yourself as someone who works for free and then <laughs> everyone else can expect it. It seems like you've, you've actually impacted some of the discourse on this. And that to me is really admirable just by, you know, finding a place to aggregate this that people don't want to be flagged for trying to um, muscle people into working for free or, or insulting them by kind of acting like they're doing them a favor. Like, hey, you know, because I think you said that, that the more I think about this, it, it is kind of like, hey, I got this opportunity for you to work where I'm not going to pay you, but I'm doing you a favor. I, I think that's what like kids today would call gaslighting. I, I, I'm still not fully, I, I don't know if I use it right, but I, that, that my, the general understanding I have of gaslighting, that almost sounds like it. Yeah, I, th- I think that this has gotten people taught. Like BBC did an article once about don't sound like the people on for exposure tech. So it's gotten people talking and hopefully it's it's doing good. Right, yeah. Because I, I read this article about the club scene, uh, music club scene in uh, Los Angeles. And it, it almost sounded to me like a Ponzi scheme. Like these, this guy, he was, a, he was a kind of gigging musician, you know, kind of professional musician in Los Angeles and had had some mid to minor success. Uh, and played mid-sized clubs. But a lot of these clubs now are like, you, you got to guarantee that like 400 people will come. And if they don't come, then you got to make up the difference. You know, so it's like, it's almost, I said, it almost seems like a, it struck me as almost like a Ponzi scheme, right? Because yeah. that's a, like, you, you know, you're paid by the customers that you sign up rather than, yeah, we're going to give you a couple thousand dollars, you play and then 
And, and in some ways, perhaps this is something that always existed, but it's something that obviously digital technology and, and digital communications has allowed to kind of um, accelerate. So, well, thank you so much for coming on to discuss the, uh, the Band Book Club, but also just talking a little bit about your own experiences and, and also uh, giving us some insight into the start of For Exposure. So I really appreciate Ryan Estrada for dropping into the caves of Altamira. All right. I'm, I'm happy to come. And I'll, I'll say one more thing. Sure. Since I, uh, I was listening to the first episode, you, you, uh, you, had a, uh, you said at the end of the episode, there's going to be uh, the, the news of a, a book that hasn't been announced. So I'll make it a tradition and say that like literally as we were started recording, I had to stop writing a band book club Christmas, which is what I'm working on right now. Excellent. All right. So a band book club Christmas. Excellent. Oh, thank you for um yeah, giving giving a little juice to the caves of Altamira. Um, God knows we need it. Um and making this uh, announcement. No, quite seriously, that's awesome. And I I'm really gonna um look forward to that. I really love uh band book club. Of course, as I mentioned, this is something that is just you know near and dear to me uh, as a scholar, as a teacher. But I think I want to stress that you could know nothing about Korea, literally nothing, and you could read this book and you will find that there's a lot for you in it. And I think that's important to to emphasize here at the end that I, I might look at it in a certain way based on my own studies and, and, and background, but I am absolutely confident that, again, you could know next to nothing about Korea, and there's so much in this book. Um, about again how we the choices we face, how we respond to those choices. Um, it's it, it, it's a it's a tale of friendship. It's a tale of difficult decisions. Um, it's a tale of redemption and betrayal and and all of these things packed into the life of a freshman um, at a university in South Korea in the 1980s. And and I think it, it's just it's it, it, I, you know as I mentioned in the intro, it's just one hu- massive amount of awards and it's been recognized the world over. Uh, and so, um, I think my endorsement is nothing in comparison to that. And I think that should speak for itself. So thank you so much, uh, Ryan Estrada for joining us, uh, here in the caves of Altamira. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Yeah.